welcome back to the Director's Wall Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. Alright. Uh, bit of a hiatus. We went on summer hiatus. Summer break. It's yeah. uh, summer vacation. Uh, you know, we had gotten vaccinated and we were having fun with the world being open again and then it closed down again. Yeah. <laughs> or in Texas, I guess, never closed down, but we closed ourselves down to... Uh, be a little safer, uh, but you know what? We're back. We're t- we're in the same room. We're we're healthy guys. We're we're in. I'm excited to. We're kind of. I think it was good to take a break because the last episode we did a few months ago was a bunch of like a potpourri of uh, Coppola shorts and and I think that was a good sort of like intermission point because now we're back into sort of like I, what I would consider the later half of his career. Now we we can just say that and. Uh, starting with uh, Gardens of Stone, which is what we're covering today. A movie that I had never seen before. I don't really know a lot of people who have seen it. Uh, neither do I on both accounts. This was a movie that I didn't know existed until I started working at Vulcan Video and had to organize the director's wall every like Wednesday or whatever. What's this movie that has been misfiled in Coppola's <laughs> section? <laughs> Nope, it's a real movie. No, and he made it. He directed it. But before we go into it, we're going to talk about the wine. We always enjoy a nice bottle of Coppola wine. Today, this is one we've done before. The 2018 Black Label Claret 1910 type Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I'm not going to read the back because we've done it before. But, uh, yeah, it's a good It's a good wine. It's a good... Uh, I think you could recall, uh, describe this as a robust red. Is that I think that's a word people use when describing red wine. Yeah, um, it's mm. robust, like all of the Coppola wines, uh, but the reds especially. Like you can, you can just drink it. Like it's, you don't need a big meal to go with. <laughs> like it's not, you know, to complement the meal. I'm sure it will complement. Food, whatever appetizers or pork tenderloin <laughs> it recommends. But if you just want to have some wine, but you don't want to like, you know, uh, have your taste buds assaulted with like bold, <laughs> stark flavors, like it's a, it's a, it's an easy drinking wine. I've enjoyed all the Coppola wines we've gotten, but I gotta say his like his reds really are where it's at. I think the Coppola red wines are fantastic. Like a red wine to me is like a, a chore. Like you have it with food as part, like as another ingredient with whatever the course is, and you can't just drink red wine. Yeah, yeah. On Usually its that's own. what white wine is for. Usually yeah. that's the hanging out on the porch wine is white wine. But if you want, and you can have these with food, but if you want to just hang out and drink a red, you can do that, and it's not gonna like make you sweat. Like sometimes I drink <laughs> when I drink wine, I'm like sweating by the end of the glass. Yeah, we're enjoying it in the middle of August in Texas, and we're okay. Neither of us are sweating. Um, you can even like dip bread in it, like they do in the Irishman. Yeah. See, there I'm trying to slip the Irishman in every episode. Did it in the first five minutes. Done. It's like mm. Hitchcock's cameo. It's gonna happen, <laughs> so let's just do it early. Get it out of the way with. And if we ever do uh, Scorsese in the director's role, we got to somehow mention Gardens of Stone in every episode. <laughs> we could do it. Do we want to do it? Here, here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, the, the Paper, Paper Boy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> All right, so Gardens of Stone. Um, so I guess it's my turn to do the plot synopsis. Um, and I'm kind of happy about it because it's a very more so than most movies we've watched for this, a very uh, simple plot, a very straightforward story for the most part. So, Gardens of Stone. We have Mr. James Kahn, Jimmy the Dream, playing Sergeant Clell Hazard. And 
His job is to, uh, he runs the 3rd Infantry Regiment, also known as the Old Guard, in Fort Myer, Virginia. And that is basically like the soldiers that are working at like uh, funerals for soldiers that die in action. Uh, or just veterans that die, and they're the ones that do sort of like I don't know if you've ever been to a military funeral. They do. They do. There's a lot of kind of ceremony involved, and they play. They play taps, and they do some taps like the, the Twenty One Gun Salute, yeah. the folding of the flag. Folding the flag, and that's who he's in charge of. Is that group of those people that do that? Uh, he wishes he was training soldiers to fight in Vietnam. Uh, he really wants to work at Fort Benning in the movie. He talks about he wants to work at Fort Benning, uh, but he doesn't get to do that. Uh, so he's sort of a little bit jaded, but he's doing it. He's very against the Vietnam War, not because he's against war, but because he doesn't think they're doing it properly. He doesn't think they're doing it right. He doesn't think they're doing it in a way that will they'll win the war. Uh, so a little different than someone who's anti-war. <laughs> he's he's the yeah he's anti. Vietnam, but he's Vietnam War, but he's not like a pacifist. Yeah, uh, he works alongside James Earl Jones, who uh, is great in this movie, and James Earl Jones plays uh, Goody Nelson, who basically, I believe, am I right that he is above James Caan's character? That yeah, he is like slightly higher up in the chain there. Uh, they also work alongside a Dean Stockwell. Uh, we get a uh, Larry Fishburne as sort of a drill sergeant type, making sure the barracks are run properly, that everyone's uh, bed is made and uh, dressed uh, correctly. And so James Conn's going about like, his life, doing his thing, doesn't, is not really happy. He's a divorced, divorced man, doesn't really see his family. But then a young man named Jackie Willow, played by D.B. Sweeney, shows up. And there, for whatever reason, this and I think he is the son of someone that James Conn knows. Like, because yeah. there's a letter written to James Conn's character being like, "Please keep an eye on my son. Make sure he does okay through all this." And so there's this kind of father figure, son figure relationship forms between the two of them, where he basically takes him under his wing, sort of, and basically tries to guide him to do the right thing to like. You know, in 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 a way, not a strong way, tries to dissuade him from going to Vietnam. But DB Sweeney's character is very much like Willow is like, no, I gotta go. I gotta prove myself. I gotta do the right thing. The right thing is to go fight, defend my country in Vietnam War. Um, Then Willow himself takes on another soldier under his wing, uh, a a character played by Case. I'm gonna say his last name wrong. Casey says Moscow. Whom you would recognize from, like, I think he's in Three O'Clock High. Is that right? That seems right. He is uh, most known for, everyone will instantly know who he is because he is 3D in Back to the Future and Back to the Future 2. That's right. He's the guy in Biff's gang that is wearing 3D glasses. That's right. Uh, He was also one of the uh, uh, greaser types in Stand By Me. Oh yeah, yeah. He ha- he has that he has that look. So he plays a uh, wild man, and he's the guy in the you know like I mentioned Larry Fishburne kind of being the drill sergeant kind of guy. Wild man's the guy whose uniform isn't quite in the best shape. His bed isn't quite made the right way, and so uh, Willow stands up for this guy, and it's just trying to be like, this is how you wear your hat, and this here's a secret on how to shine your shoes, and basically is trying to get this character in line so that way he doesn't keep getting in trouble. Very much sort of like how Matthew Modine interacted with... Um, Private Pile. Private Pile and Full Metal Jacket. Like, they really want this guy to do well. Because, as you learn from these movies, if somebody fucks up, then they all get punished. You end up with everybody having to do push-ups or everybody getting all their stuff gone through. So you want everyone to work together as a team. <laughs> And so the movie is like, it's like these relationships, them helping each other out. Uh, James Conn character uh, dates a reporter played by Angelica Houston. She's very much an anti-war person. She works for the Washington Post. And the movie goes along, and then it ends. And that's the plot. <laughs> Basically the plot. A character-driven movie, uh, for sure. Uh, more, I think definitely less plot-driven than... 
most of the Coppola movies we've talked about. This is very much a small movie. It takes place in mostly on the army base, or occasionally someone will go out to eat somewhere, or go to a bar, or it'll be in like the sad little apartment that these people live in, and you don't really get um, a big. It's not a big pick. Like you couldn't be more opposite than Apocalypse Now, <laughs> as Vietnam War movies go. This is, takes place at home. This movie never goes to Vietnam in terms of filming a scene or having a scene take place there. It's all in Virginia. Any views of Vietnam are through conversation or something playing on the television, like a news report. Um, Gardens of Stone. Uh, yeah, very, very light on, on plot, this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised if uh, well, it is based on a novel. Uh, I think it would have made a great play. It feels very much like a play. It's a lot of people in like three or four rooms talking, and a lot of uh, quote unquote action that like you would expect a movie to show happens off screen and is just mentioned to like Angelica Houston at one point is arrested uh, at a protest, but we're just told that. That's something that would happen in a play. A character would come and mention, like, oh, she got arrested at a protest. Or after the the young recruits are shipped off to Vietnam, James Earl Jones is reading a uh, newspaper about the, like, total badass action heroics of, like, of a young soldier. And he saved all these people. And then he went back and saved more. And then he killed, you know, so many Viet Congs. And, like, who is that? Like... Well, wild man, of course. And so he did, like, you know, uh, like straighten up and, you know, became the kind of soldier that D.B. Sweeney was trying to help him become. But again, that's something that all that exciting stuff just happens off screen. We're just going to mention it here kind of as a joke. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's good just to say right off the bat, I did not enjoy this movie. This was not a movie that I really liked. Um, I think I found it kind of slow. I think that it had great performances in it. Like, the actors are all very good. But story-wise, it doesn't quite deliver... I just don't feel... Like, I think you're supposed to feel between at least Willow and James Consk, you're supposed to have some sort of feeling of their connection, but I never really got there. And, you know, the movie begins... With telling you that Willow's gonna die, because it's the the first scene in the movie is funeral for DB Sweeney and everybody there sitting there. So you're like, okay, so we know he's gonna die, already die in Vietnam, and so then we go through sort of the year or years before that, which is a little strange because then the whole time you're like, is the whole so much of the movie's him be like, I'm going off to Vietnam and I'm gonna do this, and the whole time you're like, well, he's gonna die, which is an interesting odd way to start the movie. It, I feel like it, like that should add poignancy to every scene with with D.B. Sweeney yeah. and to James Caan's uh, like at first reluctant mentorship of him and James Caan's relationship to him but it doesn't and I don't know why like I don't want to say that this is a bad movie I <laughs> <laughs> I too did not enjoy this film. I would say it's okay at best. It's it's like it's just yeah, it's a weird thing of like on paper it should be great. Like you're reading this and be like, "Oh, this sounds interesting. All these actors are good. This was James Caan's big comeback after taking 5 years off after he was in a movie called Kiss Me Goodbye where he played the I think he played a ghost in it. It's like a romantic comedy uh starring Jeff Bridges and uh uh, Sally Field and James Caan is like the ghost of a, of her husband or whatever, uh, and I guess he had such a terrible time working on the movie. He just was like, "I'm done," and it took his old pal Coppola to bring him back. And dude, this was his big comeback movie, and he is good in it. Like uh, he, it, it's kind of a different character for him. He's doing a more this is a more quiet, understated Con for the most part. We do get one scene of of a classic James Con violent outburst when he. Uh, Beats up a a uh, attorney who's anti-war, right? I think they said he was yeah. an attorney, um, uh, and this guy is, is kind of 
picking on James Caan is kind of be like basically calling him baby killer and all that. Yeah, all the worst. <laughs> like not like like the guy is like uh, uh, you know ant, ant, anti-war uh, like pacifist type, but he's making all like the worst kind of. Uh, of arguments and that go right into just insults on James Conn calling and, him like baby killer and stuff yeah. like that. And even James Conn is like, okay, agree to disagree. I'm, let's just walk away from this. Like James Conn tries to leave, but then the guy keeps keeps on him. So what does James Conn do? Does like some intense judo chops, does some sort of like Roger Moore-esque sort of like <laughs> white guy karate moves. Uh, knocks the guy out, but then politely waits to call for an ambulance. For politely him. waits, uh, <laughs> and I mean he could have done a lot harder, but he does like step on this guy's head. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He does that too. Um, but uh, waits for the ambulance. Tells everyone to call nine one one. But yeah, like he's he's good in it. It just, but it just on it, on paper that seems like that should be great, but it just doesn't. It's missing kind of this big emotional oomph. That you should be getting from this movie about people and about the Vietnam War, and I don't know why that's not here. It definitely this movie, I think, more than anything we've watched, lacks the kind of the Coppola style, like the Coppola imagination. Like, there's no. I'm gonna go out and say there is no in- interesting shots for me in this movie. There's nothing in this movie that I'm like, ooh, how they do that, or that's interesting. Like, even if Peggy Sue got married, there's stuff that we were like, oh, how did they... That mirror scene is really wild, or the way it's shot. And this is the same cinematographer as Peggy Sue got married. It's uh, Jordan Cronenweth, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. But it just... The movie, it looks and feels like a TV movie. There was... For me, there was one interesting shot, and it's Lawrence Fishburne's uh, first scene in the movie where he's going through the barracks... And just chewing out everyone to get them all in line. And it's a low canted shot. It's like camera is low pointed up and then kind of tilted a little and follows him down the barracks. And that's that's it. Like it was like (laughs) a brief like five seconds of something like visually uh, eye catching. And then yeah, the rest of the movie was like just kind of lacking all around though if you take a take it apart like the performances the cinematography the script it's like they're all fine on on their own but you put them together and it doesn't add up to what this movie definitely should with all its constituent parts i think it doesn't help that seven years before this he had made one of the best maybe the best vietnam war movie ever so it's hard not to immediately draw comparisons <laughs> to Apocalypse Now. And like this movie starts with the sounds of helicopters. There's a lot that it only reminds you immediately of the opening of Apocalypse Now that has the sounds of helicopters filling the, you know, the, the soundtrack. And then just like Apocalypse Now, you have like a very early on scene of sort of like people behind desks kind of talking to each other about what they're going to do and it feels very much like those scenes in Apocalypse Now where they're get where Harrison Ford's giving Martin Sheen his mission also and, it doesn't help that and I mean it's you know based on a book so Coppola didn't do this but the D.B. Sweeney's character is named Willow and this was a year before <laughs> Willow I think or the year of Willow the Around movie the <laughs> But Martin Martin Sheen's character in Apocalypse Now is Willard. Yeah. So I kept Willard. I kept Willow. saying Willard in my head, or when I was writing notes. And Lawrence Fishburne yeah. in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Grew up, got promoted. Now he's a drill sergeant. <laughs> and so, like that is working against this movie. I mean, there's even a scene where there's arrows in a helicopter, and you just you're constantly thinking of Apocalypse. I know I was constantly thinking of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I think, isn't there a Doors poster in a scene, I think, or something? I think there's like a picture of Jim Morrison someplace. Uh, Is that in this movie? I think, well, there's definitely some Doors music happening in the background of one scene. Oh, yeah, Um, doesn't like break on through or something play? So then it's like, okay, you're playing the Doors again, which was in Apocalypse Now with the end and when the music's over. It's just like, it's just so... um, yeah, it's just hard to not think about like this guy made this amazing 
artistic achievement that is Apocalypse Now. And here he is going back to the same subject matter in a way, but doesn't have the same you know, artistic boldness of Apocalypse Now. Doesn't have the wild creativity that that movie has. Doesn't have... I mean, this movie's half as long as Apocalypse Now. It, you pick your version. And it just isn't half as interesting or fun, fun to watch. Uh, and... Yeah, so I think that definitely works against Coppola. But but even if you, he hadn't made Apocalypse Now, this movie just feels kind of pedestrian and straightforward for Coppola. And as we've learned doing this show, that the stuff that people kind of cast aside in the 80s, up until this point, we would have been able to find really interesting things in. There was interesting things in Outsiders, Rumblefish, uh, Peggy Sue Got Married, even Cotton the, Club. Even the Cotton Club, which uh, I didn't like. There's still interesting stuff in there. But this one really feels like his most, like, this feels like the you're trying to make money to pay off your, your zoetrope debt. I did read an interview, which was done at the time, where the interviewer asked him about, like, making compromises because he was working with the cooperation of the, of the Army. The Department of Defense okayed the script, like they got script approval, and the interviewer was getting that, like, doesn't that, like, compromise, you know, the movie when you're trying to make a movie about Vietnam, but the Army has control over the movie, and he said, like, look, if you want to shoot a sunny day, but it's raining outside, that's a compromise. (laughs) And then talks about how Apocalypse Now, he financed with his own money, he could do whatever he wanted. This, it's you know a studio movie, so like he's got like you know bosses. There's parameters that he has to work within, and compromise can you know stimulate the. <laughs> I you think know, good things can come out of compromise, but uh, I feel like even if Coppola didn't have like studio uh, control over this or army control, and if he had you know like all the money he had with Apocalypse Now. I still don't think this would be a, a whole lot different. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it is weird that the army involvement is strange because it's like, yeah, Apocalypse Now, they were very famously not involved because they didn't like the portrayal of the U.S. military in Apocalypse Now. And here's the opposite where he gets their full approval. They help him out. They give him and, uniforms. They <laughs> let him shoot in Arlington National Cemetery. Let him shoot at the real... Uh, military forts. And I think that maybe is why the movie doesn't ever really feel like an anti-war movie exactly and why James Conn's character is so... Like, there's no... I would not call this movie an anti-war movie. It feels more like, well, they're just doing it wrong. Like, yes, maybe we should go to war, but it's not done in the way that we should be doing it to win. (laughs) Which is a very different opinion than... No, we should not be going to war. This war is insane. Why are we killing our children over there? And so I think that definitely... I mean, if you got script approval from the military, that means that clearly it can't be an anti-war movie because that's their business. So they're going to not be involved in a movie that's actually anti-war. Yeah, it's odd because it, it's definitely not, not pro-war. All right? it's, it, it's definitely not like in favor of... War or even the Vietnam War, I think. But there is a lot of conversations from James Caan and from the other uh, higher-up military characters that, like, yeah, the war is being conducted the wrong way, which is weird. That was like that's like John Milius's perspective on Vietnam was like we were holding back, and you know we should have just unleashed fire from the sky or whatever <laughs> whatever he was uh, on about that Coppola cut out of of that draft of Apocalypse Now. Uh, but there's still a lot of anti-war talk in it and not just from like Angelica Houston's character from and that uh, annoying uh, like annoying uh, lawyer character that James Caan beats up. Yeah. But they're talking about how like War is terrible. Like, look at all, all those, all the soldiers, all the bodies that we're burying every day. But for a movie that takes place around people whose jobs it is to do the funerals for soldiers, you feel it would have more of an emotional weight in the movie. Like having this, like you work for the military, but your job is to only see their dead bodies. 
constantly. But the movie never really goes there. Like, they talk about it. That is their job. They talk about, like, oh, they come home in boxes every day. But it's always over, like, dinner conversation is in this movie is kind of how it's talked about, like, while they're talking. It's, like, almost like someone complaining about their job they don't like. And it never has that. I mean, maybe this movie could have benefited from having sort of more of those big moments of seeing these bodies come home or them deal with this, the pain of that. But because you have a character, too, with James Caan who's so reserved and kind of doesn't really show his emotions a lot, that you don't have a scene of him having this emotional breakdown of having to deal day after day with these bodies as you'd see in some other war movie. Like, I really thought the movie... I mean, the, the title, Gardens of Stone, is referring to the military cemetery. And you just think that that would have more of this weight to this movie. And I think the movie maybe thinks it does, but it doesn't really get there. I agree. I agree. <laughs> there, yeah. There's not many scenes for all the talk of how many, how many drops. That's what they call the uh, the bodies that they bury. How many drops they do? Like we did twenty today. Uh, there aren't many scenes of the actual funerals or like the family members of whatever servicemen they're burying. You know, um, uh, experiencing the tragedy. There's not a lot of scenes of that. Yeah, um, and I think it also doesn't help that the Carmine Coppola soundtrack doesn't really fit with this movie. The music's very pretty, but it doesn't really work with this kind of small. Like it's definitely more of like he's trying to do a soundtrack to what seems like to a bigger movie, and this is a very small movie. And so having this kind of grand, you know, Carmine Coppola music play, yeah, like uh, doesn't trumpets, really <laughs> like you know, sad trumpets. It just doesn't doesn't gel. Yeah, I feel like the movie doesn't know what it is. Like, you have this movie about this anti-war stuff, kind of. Not really. You have this father-son relationship, sorta. But then the like, and it's not a long movie. It's like, I feel like this was under two hours. Yeah, right? it's, it's like, like an hour minute. It's like an hour forty. That part where he's just trying, where James Caan is just trying to like woo Angelica Houston, is so long. And that's at the beginning of the movie. It's like twenty. It feels like twenty to twenty-five minutes of him trying to ask her on a date. Then going on a date, and it doesn't really, you don't really understand what it has to do with anything. Like, granted, like, you get stuff out of their relationship because she is genuinely anti war and he's sort of like in a different point. Like, but there's so much of a hundred minute movie just on him trying to get her to have dinner with him. <laughs> so, the it, it's odd that the relationships of these characters are so important, but. I cannot understand why Angelica Houston's character is attracted to or into James Caan. I can't understand yeah. why Mary Stuart Masterson's character oh. is into. Uh, we didn't even really mention her Sweeney. in this movie yet. Like that role is totally thankless. Like she does nothing. She's just there to marry this main character and then be sad at his funeral. Yeah. She has one scene where she like stands up to her father because her father is a colonel and he doesn't want. Uh, he doesn't want her to marry someone from the lower ranks, marry a, an enlisted man. And she tells him off. And then, I don't know if it was supposed to be funny or not, but after she tells off her dad, is smash cut to their wedding. <laughs> and her parents in the movie played by her actual parents. That's oh. her actual mom and dad. And we didn't mention that there's an Elias Cote... How do you say his name? Coteus. Coteus in the movie. So you get a little, some kind of wonderful uh, reunion, even though I don't think they have any scenes together, but made the same year. So maybe somebody liked the casting of that one and decided to put them both <laughs> together in this. Uh, my favorite parts of this movie was any scene with James Earl Jones in it, because he is genuinely funny and charming in this movie. He, he's a very he's a, lively, horny character. <laughs> If you wanted to hear what Darth Vader would sound like as a horny man, <laughs> watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> but like the scenes with him and James Caan together, there is a great chemistry there. It's the only chemistry in the whole damn movie, honestly, where they feel like two old friends and they when they get together, their language gets a little more blue and they get a little more silly. And that James Earl Jones seems to be having a great time in this movie. And he's playing sort of a lighter character than he normally... Which is interesting because he's playing sort of a high up in a military guy. 
But usually when James Earl Jones in a movie, he's very serious and he's very like I am the you know the most serious, strongest man in this room in terms of my presence. But here he's kind of goofy in a way, and yeah, horny. <laughs> he's a horny, he's a horny guy. He's very excited to talk about uh, James Con dating uh, Angelica okay, Houston. He's been, but he's also he's also very into very into and horny for his own wife, played by Lonette McKee. <laughs> So it's not just like he's uh, creeping on, you know, uh, other women. He's, yeah. He's also still very horny for his own wife. <laughs> Which is how you should be. Good, yeah. good, good for you, James Earl Jones. Correct. We also have uh, from Apocalypse Now, um, Sam Bottoms is in this movie. I don't really remember seeing him much in it. He's in it very, what seems like very briefly, or I just didn't recognize him. Um, there's one scene where I like, oh, there he is finally, and then I don't think he was in the movie after that. Um, it's it's like fun and odd that uh, these established actors from previous Coppola movies are turning up here for nothing. Yeah, for nothing <laughs> roles, almost like cameos. <laughs> Yeah, Bill Graham was in it, who was the guy, the agent in Apocalypse Now for the dancers, and he was in JW in the Cotton Club. He shows up in this movie. Yeah, he's the annoying attorney that James Caan beats up. Yes, and that seems great, but again, it's this weird thing of like you have the one person who's really vocally against the war is portrayed as like an obnoxious character who then gets beaten up by someone in the military, and you're like, okay, <laughs> it's a little weird. And yeah, like going back to the Angelica Houston thing, it makes no sense that they're a couple. Even his way of courting her is just kind of like annoying and just sort of like he's just kind of following her around her apartment. Clearly she wants to be left alone, but he just basically forces his way into her apartment, demands that she has dinner, lies to her about this dinner, made it up, calls James Jones quickly being like, you need to come over with your wife to dinner because I said there's a dinner party so I can have this beautiful lady have dinner with me. Um, <laughs> And even after he beats up her friend for saying that the war was bad, and yeah, granted, he was mean and called them a baby killer and stuff. He, he, crossed, he did cross the line. But even after that, there's a moment of her like kind of like shocked by it. But then it's as if it didn't happen, and she's back with him, and they're like, we love each other. This is great. That reminded <laughs> me. It's like, what? doesn't make any sense. It made me think, like, <laughs> it, it, that would be like if Sybil Shepard was okay with Robert De Niro trying to kill the governor in Taxi Driver. <laughs> or not just okay with it. Just never mention it again. Like, yeah. oh, but there's good qualities about you that I like, so we'll just forget about that insane spurt of violence you did in public to my colleague. To, like, my friend, like, that was... Because <laughs> you think that that was going to be a big thing, but it really isn't. Like, it happens, that scene happens, and then it's kind of almost like it never happened. You think there'd be any, like, even a repercussion of that happening, of him beating up in public this a, a, a lawyer, an attorney. But then they have just a thing afterwards being like, oh, he... He dropped all. He's not going to sue you. He feels like he, he felt like he maybe went too far. He's sorry. The end. And just kind of like brushed under, you know, just swept under the rug and just kind of brushed aside. <laughs> just really weird. I found that very strange. Um, what? Oh, and, and it's interesting that Angelica Houston post Captain EO. I wanted to point out that she clearly had a good time working with him on that Disney ride and came back. Um, so a big, a big thing that we haven't talked about with this is sort of what happened in the life of Francis Ford Coppola, which I think maybe is a big answer as to why this movie maybe has the problems that it has. Do you want to talk, talk about it? Since you read the Coppola bio, I've just kind of yeah. got this from the Wikipedia I'll so that you probably know more. Go into it. Um, so, uh, and I, I'll just say it up front so it's not like I'm teasing out some kind of story. Uh, Francis's son, Gio, Giancarlo, died. Oh during the filming of this movie and died suddenly and tragically in a boating accident with uh, the son of another famous uh, person, uh, uh, Ryan O'Neill's son, Griffin O'Neill, who was supposed to play the role of Wild Man. Yeah. And he, uh, is it, are you surprised, had uh, substance abuse problems and just all kinds of other problems. He had 
been arrested for reckless driving and carrying a concealed weapon. He had like a knife that was bigger than a pocket knife and the movie had to bail him out. Uh, it was Memorial Day weekend, so Griffin O'Neill and Gio Coppola and Gio's fiance, they all went out on a boat and Griffin O'Neill was driving the boat recklessly to the point that it frightened uh, it frightened Gio's fiance and she made them stop the boat and let her out. Good uh, for her. You... And she was pregnant at the time with their child, yes. right? Yes, yeah. though the family did not know about that. It's unclear. The book doesn't make it clear if Gio knew or not. Oh, that she was pregnant. But uh, the Coppola extended family did not know that. And there were two other boats on uh, the lake or the river kind of behind each other. And Griffin decides, I'm going to speed this between those boats, not realizing that one is being towed by the other. So there was a cable there. Oy. It knocks down Gio with such force that he dies of massive, massive head trauma. Uh, Griffin then tries to blame it on Gio, saying that he was driving the boat but there were a lot of people around that saw a blonde guy driving yeah. this boat uh, he gets uh, ultimately charged and convicted with like reckless endangerment and didn't serve any jail time but had to do like a lot of community service and yeah. Coppola uh, dealing with this decided the best way to do it was just to keep on with the movie it's what Gio would have wanted he had to like busy himself, otherwise he would just be, you know, alone and sad. And so they went right back to filming, and it that kind of just cast a pall over the rest of this movie, which is about uh, <laughs> about the death of young men, about one man specifically, about a father-son relationship, yeah. and yeah. you know, losing someone before their time. And yeah, like that's so it's it makes sense that Coppola would be distracted while directing the movie, why he wouldn't maybe have his normal sort of uh non stop imagination that we've seen in his other movies. Because, like, how could you like it's good, good for him to like get up and like do stuff and like make a movie and do like a thing that he likes to do? Like, that's probably a good distraction from just sitting around and being depressed that your son has passed away. But it definitely, I think it make it makes sense as to why this movie, more than anything we've seen, I think up until this point, kind of feels more like he did a job because I think he, in a way, had to do that just to kind of keep his sanity. It seems like um, it's also worth noting that his uh, son who passed was going to be in the movie, and his character ended up being played by Coteus. And I guess hmm. Cotea said it was a little strange to kind of be in this movie knowing that you were playing the part that was the director's son whose son had just passed away. Um, that would be a little awkward, yes. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is weird to like you're making a movie about basically a father losing a son, a father figure, but still. And you're spending a lot of time in graveyards and it f- filming some funerals. And maybe that's why the movie doesn't lean so much harder into the darker emotional depths that it could have gone to. It makes sense that maybe Coppola didn't want to do that while he was experiencing that in his own life. And so that tragedy, of course, you know, looms over the movie. Like, it's one of those things, like, it's just attached to the movie. Like, uh, It's much like the Twilight Zone movie, when you know going into the Twilight Zone movie that Vic Morrow died. Yeah. It's kind of hard to totally not think about it while watching it. It just comes up. Like, if you know this movie... Then you also know this about this movie. You can't uh, separate the two. Like in that interview uh, I mentioned, I read. Of course, it finally comes up, and Coppola brings it up because the interviewer was just trying to skirt around it, didn't want to ask. And Coppola finally says, "Like, look, with this movie, I had to, I had to honor Geo. That was like his number one priority with making making Gardens of Stone." And uh, it does come up again in Twixt. Because in the movie Twix, there is a reference to someone dying in a boating accident. So this, this will not be the last time that uh, we talk about this. But you know, and, and that movie was made some years after this. It just took some time mm-hmm. for Coppola, maybe to process through it enough to be able to kind of sort of deal with it via a movie. Um, another problem I think that this movie has against it is it came out the same year as Full Metal Jacket. 
like literally the same year. I'm guessing within a few months of each other. <laughs> also a year after After Platoon. Platoon. Yeah. And Platoon, depending on your opinion, is an anti-war movie. Um, and uh, and definitely is, but, but also that movie definitely was seen by everybody and definitely showed more of the brutality and of that war and took place in Vietnam. And then, yeah, Full Metal Jacket has scenes very similar to this movie in a way of like the scenes in the barracks with like with like Arlie Ermey walking around yelling everyone is very much like the Lawrence Larry Fishburne scenes in this and I wonder if they were aware of each other when they were making the movie or not or, or what or because they both must have been made around mm-hmm. the same time or I guess Kubrick takes a little longer to make a movie so maybe his was <laughs> done before or after this but they both nevertheless they were both released in 1987 and Full Metal Jacket is like no question that that's an anti-war movie. Uh, that movie has nothing good to say about the Vietnam War, and it's very dark and not afraid to go to the dark places. Um, and also, I think it also has sort of the same thing that this movie has, where you hear the guy talking almost as if reading a letter or something he wrote. Like, isn't that also in Full Metal yeah, Jacket? Yeah, Full Metal Jacket has a Joker. Um, Narrating the letters that he's writing home to his, uh, I think his grandmother, and they use that in this with the deep with the Willow character. You hear his letters, um, which was just a thing to go with. Uh, for some reason, with the Vietnam War, that was like a thing. Uh, there's also that great. There's that documentary called, was it called like Dear America or something like letters? Like there's a documentary that's name eludes me, but like. Where it's like letter, actual letters that soldiers wrote uh, home from Vietnam, and it's like pe- famous actors re- reading them. I think it's just called Letters from Home, Letters to Home from Home. Um, but yeah, that's just a thing. But yeah, Full Metal Jacket, a much better movie <laughs> than this. It's hard to not think about Full Metal Jacket when watching this movie. Yeah, and so those movies, both Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, are like intense, visceral. Movies because of the the violence that you're seeing on screen and the uh, emotions that they stir up of uh, you know like fear and anger and why are we here and like well we're here so let's just try to live and this movie like like we had mentioned like should have like its visceral impact should come emotionally from the grief and tragedy dealt with all of these soldiers that come home you know 20 bodies a day that they bury and some you know and some you don't but the ones you don't know you feel like you do know because the uh you know story is tragically the same for for a lot of the young men that served but it doesn't it doesn't have that emotional impact maybe because you know Coppola dealing with his own personal tragedy didn't really want to delve into the the weight of trauma and loss <laughs> you know and that's understandable it's understandable if that didn't even occur to him yeah you know if he's like we're, we're shooting the movies and the script is good this is it you know like oh no like we don't need to rework that scene or like or there's not enough scenes of people crying like yeah it, it totally is understandable if he intentionally decided not to go there or if he just didn't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't fault him for, you know, for the, I, 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 you know, I can't imagine what it's like to deal with what he had to go through and to then try to make a movie, which is a lot of work, even if it's a movie that you're not the true auteur of or whatever you want to say, like just direct a movie, that, that's a hard job. Um, oh, and the movies, the other movie I was talking about is called Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam, also from 1987. 1987 really wanted to deal with the Vietnam War. It's, uh, is this movie worth watching for Coppola fans? I don't know. It's definitely interesting, sort of the you know, what went on while making this in terms of sort of his life, Coppola's life, and sort of like the back, like re- but maybe just read about it. Maybe you don't need to watch the movie because it doesn't really do anything there, there's this, not a lot there's to, a lot to take out of it yeah. even like, even with the good performances 
there's just not a lot here. And I guess the most interesting thing uh, about the film on its own is how there's not a lot there because there there should be. There should be. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like the few reviews I read from the time. I mean, and granted, we've been hearing this about every couple of movies we've talked about post-apocalypse now, and we've disagreed with most of them, where everyone's like, where's The Godfather? And it's not fair to try to compare everything this guy does to like the great movies that he's made in the past, because I think everything's just stand on its own. But there is definitely something not here. When you watch it, you're, you wonder... Like, this movie feels like it could be made by anybody. It doesn't have anything that makes you think that like a Coppola made it or that a great director made it. It really feels like just a straightforward thing. It's, um, it is kind of interesting to look at this movie in terms of a tour theory. Like, how is this a Coppola movie? Is this really a Coppola movie? <clears throat> like, it deals with family. That's something that's been important to him personally and to you know his his movies are about family in one way or another uh his movies aren't about family try to focus in on uh like personal relationships like one from the heart and here we have two adults having an adult relationship james con and angelica houston so it can kind of see see threads that connect it like it in terms of like themes and subtext but it's I, I only know those because we've been doing a podcast on them <laughs> so they didn't even really stand out I had to kind of think about it there is one scene where uh, James Conn and James Earl Jones are in a bar with D.B. Sweeney talking about how the war is being like handled wrong and uh, like you know we're gonna we're gonna lose this war probably and db sweeney's like you know we're america we can't lose a war like we're fighting you know uh, asian farmers like we can't lose to them how are we gonna lose to them and that's when they mentioned that the helicopter came back with bows and arrows in it and db sweeney says something like you know, how are they going to fight a, a helicopter with bows and arrows? And James Conn or James Old Jones says, like, that's how they're going to win because they do fight a helicopter with bows and arrows. And this Asian farmer will, you know, he can, like, go, like, march for 40 miles on no food and he's willing to, like, kill whoever he has to to win, you know, to win. And that reminded me of the themes of of the horror in Apocalypse Now. Marlon Brando's talking about how when he saw the brutality that the Vietnamese were willing to unleash to get the Americans out of Vietnam. And then he realized that the only way he could fight them was if he, you know, matched their their brutality, if he embraced the horror. <laughs> But then he would, you know, go mad and he wouldn't really be fighting for one cause or another. He would just be fighting for the sake of for the sake of causing more carnage. Uh, so that's like it's weird that the theme like that theme of Apocalypse now turned up here kind of uh, briefly and lightly like it was like the Reader's Digest version <laughs> of, of the last third of yeah. Apocalypse now. It's, the movie just doesn't feel complete. Like, when it ends, it just doesn't seem like... And even the way that the news is delivered of D.B. Sweeney's death, even though you know he's going to die, is so subtle. And if that was intentional, I don't really understand what the intention is behind that. Because, uh, like, in any other movie, you would have, like, this gut-wrenching moment of, like, oh, he, he died... But it just is like he just like James Conn's character finds out because it's like his name is just among a few names that like show up because they're the ones in charge of doing the funerals. And again, do you think that would be a very painful, interesting scene in the movie if this guy then has to prepare and set up this funeral for this person that he was basically a father to? But the movie doesn't go there. The movie doesn't do that. You know, I mean. 
I guess it could have gotten ridiculous with the emotion. You could, you know, but it didn't didn't have any emotion. It really is just sort of happens, which I guess fits with the way James Conn character is. He's this sort of like this reserved guy in a way, but it doesn't really work for in a movie in terms of being effective emotionally. Um, interesting note: this movie is written by Ronald Bass, the same year he wrote Black Widow. A year after this, he'll win the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Rain Man, uh, becoming a incredibly sought-after screenwriter to this day. Uh, he is if you look up his filmography, he has written so many popular movies, big movies. I guess he's a big script doctor. Uh, supposedly, he has so much work that he has a team of people that helps him write these screenplays, referred to as the Ronettes. Because he only hires women, and they help okay. him. <laughs> they help him do research and help him critique his scripts. So, may, I don't know if he still does that, but hey, if you're a young lady in Hollywood, you could be a Ronette. I suggest maybe you don't do that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, found that fascinate a fascinating fact. <laughs> uh, another fun fact about this movie: it features three people. Who ended up working with Wes Anderson, who definitely has a couple of connection, uh, beginning with when he made the movie with Jason Schwartzman with Rushmore. But even before that, we have James Caan, who was in Bottle Rocket, of course. We have Angelica Houston, who's been in numerous Wes Anderson movies. And a Roman Coppola, who helped behind the scenes in this movie. So, has Wes Anderson seen this movie? Is he a fan? I would think he would not be, just because it was a movie doesn't look, doesn't feel like a movie in the way uh, that he would... Like and the, I think there's a good reason why you didn't recognize this movie's title when you looked at the Francis Ford Coppola section. This is not a movie that anyone talks about. The cover of the movie is frankly really boring. It's just James Caan kind of standing at attention with his outfit on, his uniform on, which tells you nothing really. It's just yeah. like, it's like I remember looking at that and thinking, yeah, I don't need to see that movie. And now I am finally <laughs> I had to watch it. Uh, and I'm not surprised I didn't like it. I went in thinking, I don't know if I'm going to like this movie or not, just based on just sort of this gut feeling and the box. And I was right. <laughs> I'd be interested to hear from someone who really likes this movie as to what works for them or if there's something that's just not connecting with us. Um, yeah, very fascinating. Is there anything else you have to say about Gardens of Stone or any anything? tidbit of uh, anything exciting only that it um, it stands out in comparison to other Vietnam films of the era I mean it's right it's sandwiched in there right with uh, Platoon and Full Metal Jacket but the 80s now beginning with you know the late 70s with Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now we could finally start making these movies about Vietnam and dealing with that on film and there were you know anti-war films and then all of a sudden in the 80s it shifted and they became action movies you have Rambo part yeah. two type thing Rambo <laughs> and the like uncommon valor missing in action I think is that Vietnam yeah missing in action and so it's like yeah like badass like actually we didn't lose or like well we're gonna we're gonna go back and win again <laughs> yeah that was the genre then in the late 80s it starts to shift back with like platoon being like you can look at it as like action war movie but it also has an anti-war film it's just got so much you know awfulness going on and full metal jacket which kubrick didn't intend to be an anti-war film he just wanted to make a film about war as a phenomenon he didn't want to be political but because he's such a cold dark dog yeah <laughs> he couldn't help but feel like it's not okay uh, and then and then there's this movie which i think i've i think of it as a an anti-war movie not really like a political movie but dealing and it's the only one of these dealing with what's going on at home in a very specific part of home maybe that's 
one of the reasons why it didn't connect. So it, it stands out uh, compared to other Vietnam movies. Also, it's just not as good as those other yeah. movies that you listed, unfortunately. Uh, and a subject matter that he would never deal with again. Like this is mm. the end of him talking about Vietnam, and maybe that's okay. Um, you know, he, he, you know, he's got other stories to tell. Yeah. Um, uh, the movie did not preview well. It opened on like sixty, or it only played in like sixty theaters. Uh, made like six million dollars, and then uh, got pulled from theaters. I'm impressed yeah. it made that much money. This feels like a movie that you would have seen. Like, oh, this was an HBO movie in the early '90s. Like, it really has that TV, not like ABC TV movie, but like cable TV movie from like that time before we knew that HBO was the greatest channel of all yeah. time. Like when they would make sort of like movies with star power but they you can tell they weren't quite didn't feel like real movies in a way like it didn't have the budget or just didn't quite have the you know the the, the style or the you know cinematic you know that this movie feels very it's the most straightforward couple movie we've seen like wouldn't you agree like I can't think of anything like this that we've seen so far uh, yeah yeah. Everything else feels like a movie. It feels like a guy who's really thinking about it, and this one just doesn't have it. But I'm going to chalk that up to do to him dealing with some heavy-duty uh, depression, trauma, uh, grief. Like, I yeah. wouldn't be able to... You know, most people, when they deal with a death that close, they don't go to work. They take a leave of absence. He continued to work. He thought that would be best for him. Um but yeah, I think it's just like his heart isn't quite in it. Uh, so Gio's child uh, is Gia Coppola, who uh, grew up to make the film Palo Alto, mm-hmm. which I really liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, family filmmakers, really interesting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so that's Gardens of Stone. Um, I'm impressed that we talked this much about it. I was going in with Dread being like, I don't even remember this movie. I watched it three days ago, and it's already, like, just gone. It's just not in my brain. Um, I'm excited. The next episode, which hopefully won't take us three months to do, uh, is Tucker, A Man and His Dream, a movie I've never seen, but I will say uh, I never had an interest in watching this movie either. (laughs) The thing is I remember the video box for it as a kid, where it's Jeff Bridges looking kind of you know dapper and confident, and there's a bunch of cars and it has a bunch of color on it, and I remember thinking as a child, yeah, I'm not going to watch that movie. That doesn't look like a movie I have any interest in, and that title's terrible. It's a terrible title. The title uh, is. <laughs> but I'm interested to see because I mean I love Jeff Bridges a lot. He's never bad in anything. I've heard that it's a good movie from people. I don't really know what it's about. I'm assuming somebody named Tucker. I know he's a man. I believe he has some sort of dream. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, I, and it's a, it looks to be a bigger budgeted movie, so maybe we'll get some more Coppola visuals, something a little more cinematic yeah. than Gardens of Stone. Yeah, I, uh, I'll save... The backstory for our next episode, but leading into that because it um, it factors into Gardens of Stone and our last episode, how Coppola was doing jobs for hire just to pay off his debt. He was getting kind of sick of that, and George Lucas said, "Like, well, Francis, what do you really want to do?" Like, well, he has always, since he started making movies, wanted to make a movie about the life of Preston Tucker. Lucas says you should do that. And Coppola uh, asked, like the tables turned, and now he was asking his young friend to help him get this movie made. While that was being set up, is when he does uh, Gardens of Stone just to like get a check, pass the time before he's ready to do uh, Tucker. So George Lucas is involved in yeah. the movie. Is he a producer on it, or has he just kind of helped make the movie? Uh, I don't know if he, he is officially a producer That's or very not. interesting. Uh, I'm excited. I'm very excited to watch this movie. And that uh, movie is, uh, if you want to play along, it is 
uh, widely available, or at least more available than Gardens of Stone. So, uh, yeah, you can watch it for free on IMDb TV. Hey, that's what I'll be doing. <laughs> Though, isn't there commercials on that? There, there are commercials. Good job, um, IMDb. Come they're, on. <laughs> they're okay. Their commercials are are okay. They're not that abrupt. But what they do is, a commercial will come just like in the middle of a scene. Yeah, I don't like that. In a way. Sometimes I like it because I know that I'm not missing anything. Like, they didn't cut a scene. Yeah. I'll check if Tucker is on my favorite commercial-included uh, streaming site called Tubi. Yeah. They'll cut mid-sentence to a commercial. They'll cut mid-sentence, but they There's... do it in this soft way where their a countdown clock shows up in the top corner of the screen, and it counts down, like, four seconds, and then... It fades the movie out for like one second before it actually starts the commercial break. So it's not as, it's not just abrupt. Like you're yeah. watching two characters talking and all of a sudden you know, the Geico Gecko is, you know, <laughs> there talking to you. Yeah. No, I, I'm excited for Tucker. I, uh, even with some dumb commercial breaks, I'll, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm, I feel like this next batch of movies is really exciting to me because there's a lot of stuff I haven't seen or stuff that I know is really, really good or stuff that I'm really, really excited to rewatch, like Godfather 3, which I've not seen in a very long time. And we have the new cut Co- of that, which I've, the coda, yeah. which I have not watched. Have you watched it? Not yet. I've been saving uh, it. Yeah. Uh, and we won't take three months off this time, I promise. Uh, <laughs> so, These movies are all a lot easier to find also. That will yeah. help. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like we're definitely going to... St- be starting in on another phase, like a distinct phase of Coppola's career. So I am looking forward to the next couple of films. It feels like it's going to be the return of sort of him almost as an auteur, you know, sort of like the, the sort of him making movies for money. Or if they are the movies for money, he's adding some great artistic flair to it, like with Bram Stoker's Dracula or uh, um, Tucker. So, like, I'm really excited to... Uh, to jump into it all right well if you want to try to interact with us on social media uh, we're on twitter at the director's wall we're also on instagram the director's wall on instagram yep uh i run the instagram so feel free to send a message or post we don't do a lot of posts on there yeah i don't do a lot of posts on twitter <laughs> i've been off twitter for a while or i've been off the main feed of twitter uh, and my mood has uh, increased a lot. <laughs> it's gotten better. Social media, terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, I'm too old for it, but I have to do it to self-promote because I'm not rich. So, oh well. To uh, Instagram and Twitter <laughs> we go. Uh, you can uh, email us direct at the director's wall at gmail.com. Uh, Brian, also, you have... Your other podcast? Yes, The World is Wrong podcast with my good friend Andros Jones where we talk about movies that are misunderstood or hated that they shouldn't be. Uh, And we've been taking a little break, but when this airs, uh, it'll be very close to our premiere of season two, which I'm really excited to uh, jump into. We got, uh, I think, movie... Like, the first season was good, but I feel almost like it was a test run, sort of like our Shyamalan season. We learned a lot. And I don't know. I got a lot of exciting stuff. Andres has a lot of exciting. Like I think we're really going out strong, or going into season two very strong. Uh, yeah. So please check that out. I'm very excited. And for anyone wondering, we will be covering M Night Shyamalan's Old as a bonus episode. Yes. But we're waiting for it to come to our homes, which will be in October. So that could be our Shocktober episode. Yeah. That's what we can do: is not do a Coppola movie that month, but do a Shyamalan movie. Because we follow strict Shocktober rules where you can only watch a horror movie or horror-adjacent movie in the month of October. If you stray from that, you have failed Shocktober. Yes, you don't want to let Shocktober down. You were kicked out of Vulcan Video. (laughs) My favorite tradition from Vulcan Video, which has just now become my life during October. Our life, yep. Uh, Forever. It'll forever till the day I die. That is how October, Shocktober is. Like, Wiz, why not? Why not devote a whole month to horror movies? Even if you don't like horror movies, 
you can find something that's like Elvis but monsters or ghosts that's more light that you can still spend a whole month doing it. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, so till then, we will find out who is who is Tucker and what is his dream. And is he a man? <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> we did it. <laughs>